Turbo Alpha, the team of Nebraska, and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. This is weekly Monday appearance managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron, and what follows. Dave Cameron, as he does uh, every Monday, analyzes all baseball. Of particular note, this week uh, is a series that Cameron contributed to the pages of Fangraphs last week. That's his trade value series, in which he ranks uh, from 50 to 1, the most valuable players slash contracts in all of baseball. We, uh, I ask him questions about that, is what I do. Questions like, uh, Josh Ellison's the only player to appear on that list who's also been traded, who actually has been traded recently. Has that deal worked out for Oakland? Has there been any benefit uh, to that trade for that for Oakland? And how has it helped um, either Toronto or Josh Donaldson uh, himself? That's one thing we discuss. Another one, Paul Goldschmidt. He appears third on that list. We discuss uh, Goldschmidt in some depth, not only for his uh, present talents or in, in talents in the near future, how they might manifest themselves, but also for how we might have identified, how anyone might have identified uh, Goldschmidt's future, say, uh, three, four, five years ago. On the topic of trade value, uh, I ask, uh, I have some questions about uh, Cole Hamels and Johnny Cueto. Uh, both of them have had a couple of rough starts, and his most recent start, uh, Hamels has allowed something like nine runs over his last two starts. Cueto, meanwhile, posted a three-to-one walk-to-strikeout ratio uh, in his in his most recent start, does or does that have an effect on uh, their respective trade values as we approach the non-waiver trade deadline? Uh, finally, Dave Cameron offers a, uh, a scathing criticism in the form of a question after reading some of uh, some of my recent work at the site. Do we think that this is a sign of injury? It's Fangraphs Audio. It, it features managing editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. Is that possible? What's happened in the meantime? Uh, no, I guess we did, we did do one in D.C., maybe. We did. Yeah, you were at, uh, I believe you were you were with Appleman or something like this. Yeah. Yeah, we did that. But in the meantime, you've done the trade value series. I um, did do the trade value series. The series, which is uh, somewhat relevant to this period of the season, uh, because also players will be traded. Although frequently it's not players who appear on the trade value series list. Right. Uh, yeah, I think the concept of trade value is relevant, but maybe not these particular players because no one's trading Mike Trout right now. Right. No well, really, the only, only one team could trade Mike Trout, and they're not doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I know. It's not like the Dodgers can step in yeah. and say... We're going to trade Mike Trout on your behalf. Yeah, Billy Bean figures out how to trade Trout off the Angels in order to make a run. Yeah. Well, yeah, maybe, yeah, probably not though. Uh, oh yeah, well let's start with that point, right? So you, so you've produced a trade value series, which in a sense is an attempt to, what, measure, uh, well I guess it's pretty, it's pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? What, what you, what you would essentially get in return. Although it's not necessarily one for one because in most cases a player is most valuable to the team for which he's currently playing. Yeah, I mean I think, so the, when Bill Simmons kind of originally made made this idea popular with his basketball one, the way he presented it is not the way I present it. So he said, you know, if you're looking at it, the team with the 13th best guy would not trade him straight up for the team with the 14th best guy. And he looked at it as like a relative comparison between players on the list. So if you'd say like, you know, you wouldn't trade number one straight up for anyone else on the list. I'm not approaching it from that perspective because realistically – 
uh, none of these guys, or very few of these guys, would get traded straight up for anyone else on the list, even if they're ranked below them. And that's not really an interesting uh, concept in baseball, because a lot of times you might have differing replacement levels at different positions or uh, different financial uh, restrictions that would make it so that you know some team who would love to have uh, Giancarlo Stanton but just can't afford him uh, wouldn't even give up anything of value, even though Giancarlo Stanton <coughs> is uh, obviously a valuable player. So I looked at it more from an aggregate demand perspective and said, if all of these players were kind of individually put up for auction, uh, or you know, if if any of these players were put up for auction uh, in the current Major League Baseball environment which one would command the most in return. So you don't necessarily need to get one of these players back, but maybe you get a collection of four, five, six, nine players in return. <coughs> which player would have the most overall trade value? <coughs> oh God. Sorry, I, I might. Maybe you should go get some water. Yeah. Uh, give me a second. Yeah, we're going to give you a second. Uh, in the meantime, we will play uh, the Fangraphs audio hold music. Sorry about that. Yeah, no problem. Uh, you want to start over? Or no, no, no. It's fine. I've been playing the hold music. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, um, so, yeah, looking at it from an aggregate demand perspective where you say if, if this player was put into this Major League Baseball environment and say he's available in trade uh, and, you know, you can get a package of players in return, four, five, six, even nine guys, uh, which player would bring back the most in return uh, in terms of, like, a bidding war? Uh, rather than just saying, you know, would you rather have Mike Trout or, you know, uh, Albert Pujols or something? Yeah, yeah. And when you say put up for auction, I, it's not just the player himself, right? It's also the player attached to his contract. Right. And I think that's a significant part of the list, uh, especially towards the bottom of the list. At the top, uh, talent, I think, starts to win out a little bit where teams would say, uh, you know what, Mike Trout's expensive, uh, you know, uh, relative, <laughs> relative to the league minimum anyway. Uh, he's going to make $140 million or something over the next five years, uh, $130 million, somewhere in that range. Um, that's not a super cheap player. By the end of his contract, he's pulling in $33 million a year, one of the highest paid players in baseball. But he's so good, <laughs> he's still dramatically underpaid. So even though, you know, uh, some of the players right behind him, like Paul Goldschmidt, will be making 10 or $11 million a year, you'd still rather have Trout and, and the extra $20 million on the books because he's that much better. Right, there's just, there's no... Um... There's there's no replacing or even really or really even approximating uh, Trout's value at this point. Yeah, I mean I think that's one of the things in in doing this. Like I mean, you know every year I kind of start thinking about this exercise probably around June or so because um, we're about a month away from publication and and kind of start thinking about it. And a month ago before I had actually looked at it and ran the numbers in my head, I was like, well, Paul Goldschmidt might actually challenge Mike Trout for the number one spot this year because he's really good, having a super peak season. Uh, you know, is one of the the best players in baseball. It specializes in the, the type of skills that teams pay the most for. Uh, you know, a power hitting cleanup first baseman is also a good defender, runs the bases well. Like there's, you know, Paul Goldschmidt's amazing, uh, and he's under contract for forty million dollars for the next four years. That's a a crazy value. He's probably worth, you know, over the next four years, one hundred and sixty, hundred and seventy million, something like that. Uh, that's you know a really good deal. And then you look at it and you're like, well, Paul Goldschmidt is still half as good as Mike Trout, which is 
uh, shocking because of how good Paul Goldschmidt is. He's playing at like a Hall of Fame level. He might not get to the Hall of Fame because he started a little late, but he's playing at a, you know, a level that fits into a Hall of Famer's peak of his career. And he's still half as good, half as valuable on a per season basis. And of course he's four years older. So Trout is just, uh, so much better than everybody else that even when he's making, you know, two times, three times, four times as much money as the, you know, a very good player, uh, you, you wouldn't be able to replace the difference, uh, in performance with the difference in cost. Let's talk about, you, you note, um, and we've said just here, you note in, uh, I think the sort of, uh, the wrap up piece that features the full list of all the, uh, of all the players you include, uh, within the trade value series, you note that, um, practically speaking, none of these players will be traded. Uh, however, one of the, one of them at least has been traded as Josh Donaldson. Yeah. What, what's been the sort of, can we just review briefly what seemed to be, because we know that the A's both, um, are, have been pretty resilient despite lower payrolls. Obviously this season's not excellent for them, uh, in terms of wins and losses, although I think that, aren't they still among the, um, don't they have, like, among the best records by base runs? Isn't that right? Yeah, I think they're third or fourth in baseball. Right. So, uh, they're, they're, uh, they're, they have not chained together, uh, their actions very well, but, but the sort of raw material is there. Uh, point is, they've been successful for the most part. And, um, they, of course, don't have a very large payroll. We generally think of them as a team with a front office that makes sound decisions and is also, uh, pretty aggressive about making decisions for the future, uh, when it seems like they could be, um, sacrificing some, some, uh, players that might be helping them in the present. So when they traded Josh Donaldson, on the one hand, you say Josh Donaldson is a, uh, appears to be, uh, excellent, uh, also appears to be rather affordable. Um, and then on the other hand, you say, well, it's the A's doing it, so perhaps, uh, this will just work out for them like other things work out for them. What, what's, um, I mean, is that, is that, first of all, is that the way to sort of summarize that maneuver when it happened? Yeah, I mean, so it's, it was always a weird decision because Josh Donaldson is legitimately one of the five or six best players in baseball right now. Uh, and the A's are contenders and, you know, Josh Donaldson's under control for three more seasons after this, four more years after when they traded him. So trading four years, uh, of arbitration prices, uh, so not super expensive. Yeah, he'll be expensive in the last couple of years because he's a super two guy, but right now it's making five million dollars. He's, he's still pretty cheap. Um, you know, trading four years of a team control of a, of a top five player is not the kind of thing you expect a contending team to do. This is the thing that maybe a rebuilding team would do. And even then you see teams like, you know, the Reds and Brewers are hanging on to guys like Todd Frazier and Jonathan Lucroy who aren't as good as Donaldson and have less years in their contract. And these teams are rebuilding and they're still not trading these guys. So to see a guy like Donaldson get moved with four years left was pretty surprising, I think, to a lot of people. The A's even said last year, uh, before they were trading him, there was no chance they were going to do it. And then they finally just said, well, the Blue Jays overwhelmed us with an offer, uh, which a lot of people thought was strange because it doesn't look like an overwhelming package of talent. Uh, and I think from uh, the perspective of the time of the deal, the really the rationale, I think, could be uh, built on three things. One, the A's really liked Brett Laurie a lot and thought maybe he could even transition to second base and become an above-average major league second baseman as a 24-year-old. Uh, he had one less year of team control, so actually get fewer years with Laurie. But if you think of him as like an above-average major league second baseman, also cheap uh, and going to make less in arbitration because he didn't have Donaldson's counting stats, uh, you can say, okay, maybe the downgrade from Donaldson to Laurie isn't as huge as people would think based on their 
recent performance, especially if Laurie improves and Donaldson declines. Um, and you can say, okay, the, the guys we're getting along with him, especially Franklin Barreto, uh, make up the value loss. And so maybe we're only getting a couple of wins worth in the short term, but we get some guys that we really like. We get some more pitching depth and we get this real high ceiling prospect, uh, who could really help us in a few years. The, I think the, maybe the miscalculation on the A's part is Donaldson's actually gotten even better since they traded him. He's on pace to have like an eight-win season in Toronto. And Laurie has kind of continued to be mediocre. So instead of trading like a four-win guy for a three-win guy and some prospects, maybe it's more like they traded a five- or six-win guy for a two-win guy. And then at that point, the prospects don't look valuable enough to make that downgrade. Makes it, yeah. And then and I guess you, you've already sort of mentioned to it, but uh, mentioned it, the um – uh, Donaldson himself is playing quite well. That, that has not that has not really changed. Maybe uh, striking out a little bit more, walking a little bit less, but I think that he's uh, sort of compensated that by means of power. Yeah. Yeah, Donaldson remains, uh, you know, one of the leading contenders for American League MVP. Uh, Trout should probably win it every year until he retires. But you know, if assuming Mike Trout, you know, the Angels may miss the playoffs again, or voters just don't like him or something, assuming Trout is not going to run away with this thing, Donaldson is one of the best of the next tier of guys. Uh, and when you're talking about, you know, a legitimate MVP candidate making five million dollars, this is a super valuable thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and yeah, what will what will uh, Donaldson start making once he once he enters arbitration, or has he he has he? Well, so he he already has. So okay. this last winter he was a super two, which means he qualified for arbitration one year early. Uh, so he's basically had his first arb year last winter, and made five million bucks because he's been so good this year. He's going to argue for a really big raise. I wouldn't be surprised if he filed for. 11 or 12 million, which is a, you know, a really a large raise. You normally see raises in the, you know, three, four million, uh, if a player has a good year. Asking for seven or an eight million dollar raise, uh, is, you have to have some serious numbers. That's like Chris Davis on his breakout year, I think went from two to ten. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if Donaldson filed for something north of ten million dollars, maybe even eleven or twelve. Uh, and then, you know, if he has another good year next year, he might do it again and get up to 16, 17. And by the end of it, he might get to 23 or 24. I mean, if he keeps playing at these levels for the next few years, he's going to be making real money in the not too distant future. And so for those players, I seem to remember Tim Linscombe getting quite a bit in arbitration. Yeah. Uh, of course he had what, what he had two Cy Youngs at that point yeah. already. Yep. Uh, Awards help a lot. Yeah. Right. Now, in, in many cases, uh, these the players of this sort of caliber don't even make it to their arbitration years. But what have been what have been the the largest arbitration awards? Well, I think the largest that anyone's ever not settled uh, or not you know like Lindsay signed two year deals, so his deals don't actually count as arbitration awards okay, because he right. avoided arbitration by signing like these two year extensions for forty five million dollars. So he got like twenty two million a year, but they don't count as arbitration awards because they were multi year contracts. Uh, David Price got the largest single year. Uh, award last winter. He was a Super 2 guy who, uh, you know, has a Cy Young, and so he's got some awards, and, and kind of like Donaldson, he started making money early, uh, and he got 19.75 in his final year. So I think, uh, you know, with some inflation, I can see Donaldson getting up over 20 in his final year as long as he keeps playing at high levels, and if he wins an MVP in the next couple of years, uh, I would certainly think he would be over 20 by his final year. And your sense is uh, that, that awards are uh, quite helpful to winning your arbitration case? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so one of the the main points of arbitration is you're basically looking for comparisons and you're saying, you know, my numbers are very similar to this guy's numbers and this guy got that, so therefore I deserve this. That's basically how arbitration works. But if you can 
show that there are no comps for yourself, which is what Ryan Howard did when he went through and just destroyed the arbitration uh, records before him and, and what David Price has done a little bit. And you can say, look, nobody's come through arbitration with a Cy Young or in Linscombe's case, multiple Cy Young awards uh, or in Howard's case, whatever, 160 RBIs in his first year in the big leagues. Uh, you know, if you can basically set yourself away uh, apart from everyone else and say, those guys got 10 or 12 million, but they're not even at my level, so I deserve some kind of multiplier above that, you can really trash arbitration. And awards are one key way uh, to kind of set yourself apart from everyone else. So if Donaldson wins an MVP, uh, you know, in the next couple of years, he can say, oh, well, you know, there have been some really good third basemen to come through arbitration, but none of them had, you know, an MVP award or, you know, several all-star games and the top five finishes in the MVP. And he could really kind of make the case that no one is comparable to him, and then he could really argue for an awful lot of money. Do you envision... Uh, do you envision the Blue Jays uh, um, extending him at some point? I don't think so, because one of the things with Donaldson is because he kind of broke out late, he's already 28, headed for his age 29 season, so they already control him, I think, through age 31, which is a, probably one of the reasons why the A's traded him. I think you could, if you if you were trying to figure out what the A's logic was, it's not that hard to, to imagine that Donaldson might not age as well as some other players, given that he's a former catcher and kind of an odd development curve. And you say, you know, this might be his peak, or this almost certainly is his peak. And the question is, how long is it going to last? If you're the Jays and you already have three more seasons, you got to think at that point you're kind of already coming out of his peak uh, by the end, by the time he reaches free agency. And so, if you're locking him up beyond that, all you're buying is decline years. You're buying is, you know, 31 to 35 years or something like that. Do you really want to rush to do that? Uh, when Donaldson is at peak value and playing really well, or do you want to wait and see if he declines a little bit? Because there's nowhere really for him to go but down. He's not going to get better than he is right now. Uh, but if you wait a couple of years and he becomes maybe a three or four win player, uh, maybe you can sign him to a three or four year deal then that, you know, costs the same as extending him would now, just you didn't have to take the risk in doing it in advance. Is there any sense, is, it, is there any, I guess, should we have known that this was going to happen with Donaldson? Obviously players develop in all manner of ways, uh, but simultaneous to that, there are certain players who, for one reason or another, are not uh, given an opportunity that's sort of befitting of their talents. Maybe or maybe they have those skills that are a little, little bit less obvious. Uh, it, it, does it seem as though... Does it seem as though Donald's talents were maybe were undervalued, or did he sort of appreciably change, do you think? I think uh, it's a mix of both, but I think more appreciably changed. I think we could even look at, like, Nolan Arenado as another guy kind of in this skill set. of Like, both of them were uh, considered okay prospects. They weren't non-prospects, but, they, you know, they were mostly bat-first guys. Donaldson is a, is a catcher who no one thought could stay at catcher but had an interesting uh, ability to hit. And then you look at, uh, you know, Arenado was considered actually a, a, one of the worst defensive third base prospects in the minors, and a lot of people were projecting him to move to first base at some point and maybe be like Todd Helton's replacement. And both of these guys uh, have dramatically shifted and become some of the best defensive third basemen in the game. Arenado may be now the best defensive third baseman in baseball, um, where they just took what are probably unexpected and unprojectable leaps forward on the defensive side and also are now maximizing like their best case scenario offensively. I mean, you wouldn't have looked at Josh Donaldson as an offensive prospect and say he's going to become a guy who stops striking out and hits for a bunch of power and draws a bunch of walks. Like this just wasn't who he was as a minor leaguer. He dramatically changed his approach. And so even if you said like, okay, 
you know, with a lot of development, Donaldson could become an above average to very good hitter, uh, which is, you know, uh, in the possibility based on the, what he was as an offensive prospect. I don't think you would have ever looked at him and said, this guy's also going to be a gold glove third baseman. Uh, and the same goes for Arenado. And I think, you know, there's actually one of the interesting things about doing this list and looking at the guys who are on it is how many of these guys who are now, you know, basically untouchable franchise players were kind of seen like Donaldson and Arenado uh, as kind of, you know, low ceiling Fringe role player types. I mean, Mookie Betts fits into this as well. Where they, uh, Paul know, Goldschmidt. Even, Paul Goldschmidt. Paul Goldschmidt. Absolutely. Like they're, you know, this list is littered with guys who, as prospects or even young big leaguers, were looked at as, you know, nice complimentary pieces. A guy you don't mind having, but certainly not any kind of star. And you know, now they're they're the, you know, some of the top fifteen, top twenty pieces in all of baseball. Right. Yeah. And of course, this is a this is appropriate for today. Uh, of course, uh, Chris Mitchell. Uh, Chris Mitchell, of course, writes a lot of posts using what he calls this Cato system. Essentially, it's a way to uh, look at what uh, metrics have been predictive in the past, what minor league s- stats have been predictive in future major league success, and he applies that. He uh, he used it in, a, I think, a particularly interesting way today, though, is he was essentially looking for looking for the next uh, Paul Goldschmidt. And right. Goldschmidt was interesting, right, because he was maybe – he wasn't old for his levels, but f- for a – you would expect a, a like a prospect to be to maybe be playing a, up a level from where he usually was, right. um, and he was maybe a not entirely athletic first baseman, uh, but the numbers were really great. And uh, in uh, so today Mitchell went through and and maybe found some some comparables, uh, based based both off of Goldschmidt's you know his sort of last season in the minors that was sort of um, you know incontrovertibly good, and then maybe his uh, high A numbers from before when he was just Really good, as opposed to the obviously the best, or some, you know, right. best or something like that. Uh, so interesting there. I mean, because you come up with some names. Uh, of course, this is um, this is something in which I have a great deal of interest, and I think you know certain listeners do, which sort of uh, identifying guys. Uh, you know, and uh, it's not. I suppose it wouldn't be shocking to you know uh, looking look back on these lists five years from now and find players uh, who have real major league value that you know were probably. Um, not who have probably uh, outperformed their expectations. Yeah, and I think we we kind of know that this happens with pitching, right? Like, I mean, obviously Corey Kluber and uh, Jacob Degrom and some of these guys, you know, even uh, uh, some of the guys further down uh, the list, you know, uh, Michael Waka was kind of seen as a, a low ceiling guy when the Cardinals took him as a first round pick. So I mean, obviously teams liked him, but there was concerns about you know whether he was a starter or a reliever, whether he would have a breaking ball, uh, and he wasn't necessarily seen as you know this kind of uh, front line pitcher. Jose Quintana signed as a minor league free agent, so we kind of know like pitchers develop at very weird, you know, rates and, and not at all along a normal curve. Uh, but, you know, I think with hitters, we kind of tend to think that, uh, you know, you are what you are and it's pretty easy to identify a guy's ceiling. And with the exception of maybe something like Jose Altuve and power, right? Like, you know, there aren't any five, seven guys who are going to hit 40 home runs. Like there's some minimum level of height needed mm-hmm. to be a big power hitting slugger in the major leagues. But outside of that, I don't know how good we are really evaluating a player's ceiling. I mean, even like Anthony Rizzo was a, you know, a top prospect, one of the best prospects in baseball, but wasn't necessarily considered to be this and what he is now. Well, he's not, he's just doesn't strike out anymore, isn't that right? He just basically stopped striking out overnight. Like he went from like a 25% strikeout rate to a 12% strikeout rate. Uh, this is like a massive structural change that you couldn't have possibly foreseen. 
you know, and so even people who liked Anthony Rizzo weren't going to say that this was, you know, uh, at his ceiling or this is, you know, this is probably above what they would have thought his ceiling was. And obviously we've already talked about Goldschmidt and Betts and Jacques Peterson, Arenado, uh, Donaldson. Um, you know, there's so many of these guys on the list. I think, you know, uh, looking at it and saying, uh, Anderson Simmons, you know, another guy who's become a star and wasn't really expected to be anything. There's just so many of these guys that I think we should hesitate to uh, put a ceiling on a player and say, with any real kind of certainty, we can say that this player can't become more than, you know, a role player or an above-average big leaguer. Unless they're like 5'6 and 160 pounds, it's probably just not true. Right. You know, it's interesting. Even the thing I suppose, you mentioned if a guy is 5'6, he's probably not going to hit 40 home runs. Uh, that follows just because there are certain physical limitations. I suppose the part of development that is most surprising to me, though, is when players exhibit power above and beyond what anything like their track record suggests. And this right. is, I, now, historically, certainly, and by historically, I mean over the last 10 years, I guess, this would normally invoke calls of, uh, you know, um, performing, uh, PEDs, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, right. And perhaps that's the case. Um, you know, it's hard to say that conclusively. But at the same time, it do, there are these sort of cases when, even guys don't necessarily physically change. It's just uh, perhaps by means of mechanics they're able to develop power. I know uh, writing for just a bit outside today or Fox, um, uh, Owen Watson uh, looked at Matt Duffy. And I think that was like – I think Matt Duffy hit uh, zero home runs as a uh, as a player at Long Beach State. Yeah, I think he had like an OPS in the fives as a college player. Yeah, He's right. bat. Yeah, and I don't necessarily – I don't know what the park factor is for Long Beach State's park, um, but, you know, he was also playing at other parks. He had an opportunity, right. is the point, to hit home runs. And yeah, I can confirm he hit zero home runs during during yeah. the entirety of his college career. He actually didn't even did, – listen to this. This is his junior year at Long Beach State. 200 uh, – more than 200 plate appearances, about 250 actually. He had seven doubles and one triple and zero home runs. And he then was like and, the Ichiro of college if Ichiro was bad at hitting singles too. Right, and I guess and what? Slow. But he's but his he's uh, listed at six two one seventy. So you have to think yeah. someone of that size. It's not shocking if they develop mechanically, they could at least offer something in the way of power. And of course, now he has eight home runs, three hundred plate appearances. Yeah. So and uh, you know, I think uh, what Jonah Carey for Grantland wrote last week about like Joe Panic and Brandon Crawford, who uh, also Giants infielders who were not expected to really hit much at the big leagues in a hall or uh, hitting like all stars this year. And it's one of the reasons why the Giants are still a good team is because they've somehow figured out or gotten lucky, but more likely just figured out something uh, in identifying or developing these kinds of players and saying we're going to take a guy who's seen as having basically no power or fringe power and move him into the above average category. Uh, he's never going to be a slugger. I mean, none of these guys are going to hit 35, 40 home runs a season. They're not Giancarlo Stanton. But we can get them to 10 or 15 with good contact skills and good plate discipline and defensive value, and all of a sudden we have very good major league players. And I think uh, when you look at guys like Panic and Jonathan Lucroy fits into this, there's a lot of guys on this list who uh, were not expected to hit for enough power to be really good major league players who have figured out how to hit for just enough power to make everything else work really well, and it seems like this might be the thing that we're really not very good at, is determining which underpowered player might develop just enough power in order to become a good player. Colton Wong, I think, comes to mind as well. as another first-round pick, had a lot of skills across the board, and everyone said, well, there's just no upside here because he's never going to hit for power. Well, now Colton Wong's hitting for power and looks like one of the best second basemen. Wait, he's hitting for power too? Yeah, Colton Wong has turned into like a little bit of a mini-slugger. No one tells me anything. 
Yeah, was, you you could watch baseball and then yeah, you would see it for yourself. Good point, I guess. The um, yeah, he's got ten homers. Uh, yeah, actually, I was just uh, while you were talking at one point two, I was looking over Nolan Arenado's. Um, his his lines from the day. I, of course, I I did not know that he had twenty four home runs already. Of course, yeah. uh, one adjusts uh, for for the ballpark, but that's still a lot. Uh, in fact, his his line at this point, and I'm talking about some of the sort of uh, the sort of peripherals, the underlying things: uh, low walk rate, low strikeout rate, uh, lots of home runs, above average uh, defense at third base. He's sort of indistinguishable indis- at this point, it would seem, from Adrian Beltre or a young Adrian yeah, Beltre. Yeah, that, that's the very easy comp, and I think I made it in the write-up last week of like Arenado's basically looking like Beltre's heir heir to the throne as Beltre's declining and reaching the end of his career. Arenado is taking up the mantle of like this uh, swing at everything, high contact, high power, great defense guy. Uh, you know, no shame in that. Adrian Beltre might have been the most underrated player of his generation and should end up in the Hall of Fame if Nolan Arenado can have uh, Adrian Beltre's career. Rockies fans should be very Happy. No wait. Will you have uh, Will you have uh, Hall of Fame voting rights by the time? I guess you uh, probably. Yeah. I mean, Beltre won't retire probably until at least after next year because he's got a contract through then. Uh, and if he bounces back at all, he might even get another contract and hang on for another year or two. So if you say you know Beltre's got maybe two, three more years in the big leagues, and then there's a five-year waiting period. By that point, I will theoretically have ten years in the BBWAA, assuming I'm still writing about baseball uh, in seven or eight years. Yeah. You think I'll still be in the BBWA at that point? I don't know. It seems maybe <laughs> more likely than some other people, but less likely. Uh, I don't. I think I would give it thirty, seventy odds on you still being. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, I I had we I, this conversation about trade value uh, naturally segues uh, or leads us to a natural segue in talking about um, some players who will be traded. But I did first want to bring up because you linked to it. Uh, I think in your introduction piece for the trade value series is your original <laughs> your original <laughs> trade value post. It was so bad. Which is uh, which is it was a slightly uh, it's a less ambitious endeavor because it you know at most you have just like a, you have like a short paragraph for every player you know in some in Johan Santana your only comment is greatest Rule Five selection of all time. Yeah, um, it wasn't any kind of analytical ex- exercise. It was me riffing on. Uh, you know, just kind of enjoyed Simmons' very kind of loose entertainment-based take on the NBA and wanted to do something similar for baseball and wasn't really trying to quantify anything besides just, these guys are good. Although, wait a second, wasn't, uh, was Roberto Clemente a Rule 5 pick? He was, but I've, I think, like, the rules were pretty different then. Okay, alright, alright. Uh, yeah, Roberto Clemente, not bad himself. Do you remember, uh, do you remember your top five from that original one? Uh, I think, let's see, this was in 2005 I published this, right? Yeah. So I think, uh, maybe A-Rod was up there? Let's see, where is A-Rod? He's up here, so... I know he was expensive, but he was also still really good. Number nine, yeah, number nine. Okay, so he was number nine. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, maybe Mark Teixeira was up there? Ooh, uh, number 29. 29, wow. Uh... I don't know. Mark Pryor, I think. Yes. Prominent. Okay. So Mark Pryor was eighth. Okay. Uh, there's a couple uh, lessons on here that might have. Um, that I might... was way too aggressive with pitching. No, yes, because you also have uh, Rich Harden at number six. Ooh, that's not so good. <laughs> here, here's a. Uh, 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 I'll I'll count down from five. Five was Felix Hernandez. Right. Yeah, that one's okay. Yeah, that one's worked out pretty well. Number four was David Wright. Yeah, 
Yeah, also, I think an okay defense, defensible selection. Yeah, sure, defensible. Uh, number three, Johan Santana. Uh, sure. Sure. Uh, number two, okay. Miguel Cabrera. He's worked out pretty well. Yeah, yeah, my top five actually is a lot less embarrassing than the rest of it. Yeah, and then number one, Albert Pujols. Oh, yeah. So I did pretty good at the top of the list. Yeah, you did, yeah, you did pretty well. And because in 2005, right. Albert Pujols was still like, he's still like at yeah, least five years away from... a seven-win player or something, yeah. Yeah, right. Uh, I do know that, like, I, the one I will burn in my memory until I die is Daniel Cabrera at number 40, uh, because Daniel Cabrera threw really hard and got ground balls, and I really, I thought if they could just fix his command, he would be an ace. But, uh, as you know, Daniel Cabrera never fixed his command and then lost all his stuff, which is a bad combination. Yeah. And we have an Affleck joke here in 2005 with regard to Nick Johnson, went from Future of the Yankees to the poster boy for the, for Affleck. Yeah, I don't know why I thought that was funny. Yeah, but I was like 23, so. Yeah. Now you're not any funnier. I mean, I didn't know you then, uh, but. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, okay. Let's uh, uh, let's, let's talk about trade value of some players. I asked you this. Uh, we corresponded earlier, briefly today. Uh, I wanted to say, I said, okay, so uh, I thought Johnny Cueto's start yesterday was of some interest going into it because it was potentially a last start for the team that signed him. I think signed him for like $15,000 or something. Uh, Johnny Cueto is going to be happy to reach free agency. Yeah, he's uh, going to get more than $15,000. He's going to get a lot more than $15,000. Um, and, uh, but he did not, oh, he did not look good yesterday. I think he walked six in four. Yeah, including two bases loaded walks. Right, yeah. It did not, he had an inverted, he had, his walk to strikeout ratio was three to one, and that's not usually right. what you're looking for. Right. He, um, and he was not necessarily, he wasn't, he threw a little bit harder as the game went on, but then, anyway, my point is uh, this, and then of course, his, uh, start right before the break, he only struck out two of the 23 batters he faced, not a dominant start. I'm curious, how much impact could a could a bad start have on a starter? Could a, a bad you know week or whatever have for a batter on on his trade value? Seeing as these players are sort of um, under the microscope, as it were, as uh, at this time of year. Yeah, I mean this applies a little bit to Cole Hamels too, who obviously has had two straight lousy starts. Uh, I think he's got about 20 hits in his last six innings and has an ERA of like 25 or something over his last two starts. Uh, and so I think both of these guys, uh, you know, probably the two most notable players on the market and probably going to return the two biggest uh, packages uh, coming back of any player traded uh, next week or so. Um, and both of them are struggling at the moment. Uh, I don't think teams really care, to be honest. I think the only question this will raise in both cases is, do we think that this is a sign of injury? That's really what teams will drastically alter their value for, is if teams say, his velocity is down, we saw something with the mechanics, this is probably even more relevant in Cueto's case because he's missed some starts this year. He's had uh, starts pushed back a couple of times because of like minor elbow things. He had a, a couple of years ago, he spent almost the entire uh, season on the DL with, uh, with arm problems. So there's, there is some medical red flags in Cueto's past where you could look at it and say, you know, maybe we actually do think this is a sign that uh, there's, a, there's a health thing there and we're going to discount our offer because of that. But I think that whoever trades for Johnny Cueto is basically going to say, we're betting that we're getting the healthy version of Johnny Cueto and uh, someone will pay the full healthy price for him unless he lands on the DL between now and July 31st, which would be a disaster for the Reds. Um, but assuming he goes out in his next start and throws 94 and gets a few strikeouts and looks... Uh, 
you know, even moderately healthy, I don't think it'll affect his price much at all. And I think like Hamels' last two starts won't even be a factor. People are going to evaluate Hamels over the long term and not over his most two recent starts. There's no real reason to think he's injured. He's, you know, been a very durable pitcher. Because one of the things you're paying for with Hamels is a, a relatively low risk for a pitcher. Um, so I think in both of these cases, teams don't really care about the performance. If they can infer injury from the performance, they would care. But I don't know that you should do that based on uh, either of their recent starts. And are there any recent memories of of trade value uh, alt, uh, changing notably? You know, like in the July in July or something like that, or has it just not happened that much? I mean, injury is really the only thing. I mean, I think there have been a, a decent number of pitchers who you're like, man, this guy's going to get a lot, and then he blows out his elbow, and then that's the end of that. Cliff Lee, right? Like last year was a, a pretty good example of this is a guy who the Phillies could have gotten a lot for, and then he got hurt, and now they're stuck with him. Um, but besides that, I think generally teams are smart enough to say, uh, we're not going to react to a, you know, a couple of weeks of performance. You might have an instance where a guy's having like a monster breakout season and you say like, ah, I wouldn't have necessarily considered giving up a lot for him a few months ago, but now he's a completely different player, especially in the bullpen, right? Like if you have a guy like Andrew Miller last year, uh, who, you know, morphed into one of the most dominant left-handed relievers in baseball and got Eduardo Rodriguez, uh, away from the Orioles, uh, you know, I think that's kind of an example of a guy who took a big leap forward and, and increased his trade value quite a lot. But there's not that many of those. Is there any sense from a quality of life perspective, I suppose, that, uh, that like, for example, players like uh, who are in Cole Hamels and um, in, in Johnny Cueto's positions at this point, that they enjoy the opportunity to, you know, Cole Hamels hasn't pitched on a winning ball club for a while. Uh, Johnny Cueto's Reds have had some good seasons, but but of course not this one. It seems to provide them with a real opportunity to to be placed directly into the midst of you know postseason contention. Yeah, but there's a I think a, a trade off, right? So like yes, they get to play for a contender. Uh, yes, the rest of their season will be more interesting than if they just stay on these moribund franchises that are basically playing for the future. But they also have a pretty significant change in their routine, right? For a lot of these guys, especially guys who've been in their their homes for a while or in their hometowns for a while, uh, they most likely own property there, and they get to go home at the end of the night and you know live in their uh, home that they designed with their furniture and their families and their pets and uh, you know the commute that they've chosen, and um, you know they get to kind of do the same thing every day, and it's kind of an, a comfortable. Uh, environment for them and so even if you're not winning there are some perks that go along with it where you say like you know i think a lot of us uh, maybe a lot of people listening to this podcast they say like i don't love what i do every day but i i like the money and i like the commute and i like the you know the fringe benefits i get and i like the health care and so i do it and i wouldn't necessarily leave that for a more enjoyable job that paid less or you know i had to drive two hours to get to or something like that and these are still uh, you know, they're wealthy people, but they're still people who like these kind of creature comforts that can go along with getting to pick where you live and pick your teammates and kind of have relationships with the coaching staff. And so if you get, uh, moved to another team, now you're renting an apartment or staying in a hotel, uh, and you know, you don't have the same kind of off the field lifestyle. So I think for in that instance, for a lot of them, it's a, it's a downgrade. And so you take the upgrade on the field and you take the up downgrade off the field and you, you weigh your pros and cons. And if you have a no trade clause, you really get to weigh your pros and cons. If you're a guy like Johnny Cueto, you just go where the Reds tell you to go. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. And then of course you're only with that new team for what, three months and then you, yep. uh, and then you're going to be probably going somewhere else. Although you have more control over where you go at that point. 
Right. I think it's interesting too for a guy like Queda who has had some health concerns and has, you know, had the Reds have managed his workload a little bit based around his elbow being a little barky. He has a relationship with the Reds training staff. They know him better than anybody else. They know kind of what his pain thresholds are. If you get traded to a team like, let's say the Yankees, right? Who are obviously trying to win if they, if they trade for Johnny Queda, which they probably won't, but let's just, you know, use them as an example. They're not going to be super inclined on uh, managing Johnny Cueto's future. Like they are going to have given up significant prospects right. in order to get him to win this year, and they're going to want him to take them out every five days. And they're not going to be abusive. If he comes in and says, my elbow hurts, they're not going to make him pitch. But if he's like, ah, you know, what do you think about giving me an extra day or two? Or, you know, he doesn't have that rapport with the training staff where they're going to notice, like, hey, maybe he's a little off of his normal routine. Maybe it wouldn't be a bad idea to give him an extra day or, you know, limit him to 90 pitches today instead of going to 120. Uh, you know, that he's going to lose that. And then the team that has his rights is going to be mostly concerned with 2015 and you know uh they would like him to stay healthy and they're not going to injure him on purpose but if it you know degrades his value five percent in the future in order to upgrade their present they're probably going to make that trade hey are are deals happening um it seems as though deals are ha- happening later this year or there i mean because none have happened but, but but like wasn't samarja traded yeah samarja was traded at the beginning of july last year yeah uh, or, or am i just thinking of that as the, as the i mean that was exception. a little bit of an outlier i do think uh you know there are usually there's usually one bigger trade before the all-star break or around the all-star break that hasn't happened this year mm-hmm. uh but i do think that's basically just a result of the standings i mean if you look especially in the american league what the worst the worst team in the american leagues by record are the a's and mariners who both kind of came into the year hoping to be contenders and don't have, you know, uh, a site set on selling. The A's might move Scott Kazmir, they might move Ben Zobris, they might move Tyler Clippard, but they might keep all those guys too, or at least a couple of them. Uh, it's not obvious that the A's are going to be sellers. There's no team in the American League that's like, yeah, just you should have a fire sale and sell everyone right now. Um, in the National League, you have a few of those. <laughs> you know, you have the Phillies and the Brewers and the Reds and a few of these teams that are just very obvious sellers, but there aren't very many of them. And I think they're all kind of sitting around waiting for the market to develop. I do think we'll probably see a trade maybe today, maybe tomorrow. In the next few days, I wouldn't be surprised if Johnny Cueto was moved. Uh, or maybe Cole Hamels goes first. But one of the, these bigger names, I think, won't wait until July 31st. Uh, and we'll kind of see the logjam break once that price has been set and kind of teams have to go to their plan Bs. I think there's a lot of teams that are kind of looking at the top end of the pitching market and we'll move on to Samar's Jer Casimir, one of these lesser guys, once they know that they didn't get Cueto or Hamels. Uh, on the hitting side, there's just so little available that I think that could just end up going right down to July 31st. Like, if, if you want an outfielder, you pin basically Carlos Gomez and maybe Justin Upton if the Padres sell and Justin Upton doesn't need to go on the DL with this oblique thing that caused him to leave the game yesterday. But besides that, there's just nothing else out there. Gerardo Parra, I guess. But, like, even still, this is like Gomez and Parra both play for the Brewers. So you're dealing with the same GM if you want either of those guys. Uh, and if he wants to wait, he gets to wait. Hmm. That's great. That's good stuff. You know what you've done? I've fulfilled my obligations. Yeah, you fulfilled your obligation to the program. That's uh, that's good good of me. That's good of you. All right, let's say goodbye to Dave Cameron. Thank you, Dave Cameron. You're welcome, Carson Sestouli. That has been Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.